Hey guys, welcome to this episode of the Street Cop Training Podcast. I'm your host, founder and CEO of Street Cop Training. My name is Dennis Benino. Today with me, a very special guest. And I'll let him give his introduction so I don't screw it up. I know enough about Vic, but he'll uh, give you his one-minute biography of who he is. But none other than Vic Ferrari. And with, of course, I'm not going to make car jokes about your last name, but it is a phenomenal last name. Well, thank you for having me on your show. My name is Vic Ferrari. Or I'm a retired NYPD detective turned author. Uh, I did a 20-year career with the New York City Police Department. I was born and raised in the Bronx. Um, I've worked in a litany of units. My last 10 years, I was a detective in the NYPD's auto crime division, where I worked on chop shops, organized crime, exporting of stolen vehicles out of the country. I worked in a lot of units. I also worked in narcotics. And then, you know, after a 20-year run, I was in my early 40s. I decided to retire. And I got into writing. And I just started writing out these behind-the-scenes books about my former employer. Oh, this is going to be a good today. I can just feel it in my bones. So what are some of the things? Let's talk about your first book that you wrote. Tell me about that book and some of the things that you've revealed in that book. Well, when I first got into writing, I was a little apprehensive about writing law enforcement because, as you know, law enforcement is almost like a secret society. Cops aren't trusting people. Cops tend to hang out with other cops. Most of their friends are cops. Their family is cops. So I was a little nervous about writing, penning a book about the New York City Police Department because I didn't know how it was going to get received. So my first NYPD book was called NYPD Through the Looking Glass, Stories from Inside America's Largest Police Department. And it's it's got stories in it. I mean, my books all have different stories about the colorful criminals I arrested, the, uh, the, the, the locker room, what goes on in NYPD locker room, the cops that I worked with. I worked, you know, there's a story in there about a guy I worked with. The guy was going bald. And I mean, there's no shame about that. Just some people aren't follically blessed. And you know, over a three-day swing, he comes back with a toupee, and he didn't think anyone would notice. And I'm like, what are you fucking kidding me? I go, they're going to eat you alive when you go upstairs. He goes, what are you talking about? I'm combing it differently. I just get the fuck out of here, right? And, you know, an NYPD precinct during roll call, depending on the precinct, you got 30 to 50 guys up there, and he goes up there, and you could just hear people, like, laughing and giggling and busting their balls. I mean, cops are kids in the schoolyard, and they're just tearing into them. And he's just, you know, he's playing it. He's like gaslighting. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Then it, then when they can't get anything out of him, who are they going to come to? They're going to go to his partner. What the fuck is wrong with him? What is he doing? And I'm like, I, I, he says he's combing it differently. And, you know, everybody from my platoon lieutenant to the commanding officer is pulling me into their office like, did this guy have a nervous breakdown? And he thinks that nobody <laughs> noticed. But the funny thing is he left. After about six months or so, he left to go to the mounted unit, which is ironic because you wear a helmet. So I, like he had, had set this whole thing up that he would go to a place where he could cover that ridiculous rat nest on his head. So my books, I tend not to um, – I change ranks, times, dates, locations because I really don't want to single anybody out or names. I mean, and there's a lot with that particular story where I move things around where – you know, the average person isn't going to know who that is. I, I set out when I started writing these police books, the two things I, I didn't want to do was I didn't want to get a cop in trouble, embarrassed or divorced. So I, I move things around quite a bit. So as not to point a spotlight to on two particular who I'm talking about. So let's start off. I mean, I understand the premise of the book, but let's start off with some of the goods. I know we get some bads, but let's talk about some of the goods of NYPD over 20 years. What are some of the, the, the good things that you experienced there? 
Oh, I locked up a lot of bad guys. I mean, that was the whole point of me becoming a police officer and later a detective. I mean, growing up as a kid, you know, I, I grew up watching cop movies and cop television shows, the Rockford Files. And a lot of these, well, not the Rockford Files, but a lot of these shows were based in New York City when I was a child. So I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to get the bad guy. By 10 years old, my friends and I used to go into the post office and steal the wanted posters off the wall and start walking around the neighborhood like, you know, we got a we got a wanted poster of like, you know, Bobby Ray Allen wanted for bank robbery in Illinois. And we're wandering around the Bronx with this wanted poster, like going up to people trying to see if we're going to catch this guy. So the die was cast early on. Um, I would say like my accomplishments, I worked on some very interesting case and I, I, cases and I, and I put away a lot of bad people. Yeah. Tell me some of like your, your top one or two most memorable cases that you worked on. Give me the first one. I know one comes right to mind. Go right to that one first and then you can dig up a second one if you want. Sure. Uh, I worked on a case uh, in the early 2000s. We had Chinese nationals that had settled in, in Brooklyn and they were ex, well, they say ex, but they were military intelligence officers. And what, what the Asians did was they hooked up with a Jamaican middleman and they were shipping probably 30 to 40 stolen Audis out of the country per month. So what they had a warehouse in Brooklyn, and what they would do is they had Nash, Chinese nationals working in the warehouse. The thieves would bring the cars to the warehouse. They would drive two contain, two stolen cars per container, let the air out of the tires so the cars would sit lower in the container. Then they would build a wooden frame and drive another one or two vehicles above it. They were really maximizing the space, the containers. From there, the containers would go. They'd be uh, trucked out to New Jersey. Then they'd be railed across the country to uh, – Oh, God, what's that port? Uh, Long Beach, California. And then they were shipped to Shanghai. And we couldn't figure out, like, the orders on these cars. They had to be Audis. Audi A6 is silver and black. And the running joke in the office was, what are they, Oakland Raider fans? But the thing is, they were going to government officials over there. Oh, wow. So while we were up on the phones, I mean, we had at any given time probably 10 wiretaps going at once. And that's the beauty of working for a larger police department. that You have the resources. So... We needed Asian cops that spoke Mandarin uh, and Cantonese. So we had that. They're monitoring the uh, those phones. Then we needed Spanish cops to monitor the car thieves. Where a lot of them were black and Spanish. So we needed Spanish cops to monitor the, the, uh, the Spanish cops' phones. So while we're getting these 30 cars per month getting stolen, we, we stumble upon the Spanish guys are also in the murder for hire business. So, you know, they start making references and they're joking around about this guy that got whacked and that guy got whacked. So when we finally took the case down, I mean, you know, in addition to this wonderful thing of, of busting this international stolen car ring with cars getting stolen out of the country, we probably solved like 15 homicides. You know what I mean? Because then, you know, once we rounded everybody up, it's, you know, the first, you know, people start coming to us. All right. All right. Yeah. I was a getaway driver because now everybody wants to get to that dance quick to cut themselves a deal. So, I mean, that was, that was a monster of a case. I mean, I, I've worked on other large-scale cases, but that was a monster of a case. We did that with um, the Westchester County District uh, Attorney's Office, which at the time, Janine Pierro, Judge Janine that's on Fox News all the time. Yeah, well, it was we, we did a joint case with her office, and she's no joke. Like, she, she would come into those offices and kick ass and take names. I mean, she's not putting on an act when you see on television. That is her. I mean, I sat in many a meeting with her, and she was a really nice lady. And uh, I mean, I would say, yeah, that that particular case, because we never got the cars back, obviously, but we, you know, we disrupted that ring. 
what about some of the, um, I, I, I'm guessing some of the stuff that you, you talked about in the books are some bad things. Maybe you could uh, elaborate on that a little bit as well. Oh, there's a lot of dark things. I mean, I saw in my career. I mean, I mean, probably the worst was 9-11. I'm, that particular day, uh, I was up in the Bronx. I had court that day in Manhattan, which the courthouse is several blocks from the uh, Manhattan District Attorney's Office was several blocks away from uh, the, twin, uh, the Twin Towers. And uh, probably what saved my life is I was supposed to be down at court at nine and my sergeant was running late. We were going to sign up a, a, a guy I locked up for a couple of stolen cars. He was going to give up a couple of people in Department of Motor Vehicles that was pumping out driver's licenses. So we were going to sign him up as a confidential informant. So we were going to have a, a sit down with his defense attorney, the, the Manhattan DA. And while I'm waiting for my sergeant to get ready, the first plane hit. Somebody runs upstairs and says, put on the news, a plane hit the World Trade Center. So our first thought was, you've got three major airports in the New York City area. It's probably, you know, not a commercial plane. It's probably some guy flying a Cessna had a heart attack and hit the side of the Trade Center. It had happened before with the Empire State Building many, many years ago. And as we're watching this unfold, the second plane hits. So we said, oh, shit, this is terrorism. So the phones start ringing off the hook. They tell us to get into uniform. And uh, I was down there walking around probably by about 1.30 in the afternoon. And it was surreal. I mean, nothing could prepare you for that. I mean, even at 35 years old and I had 13, 14 years in with the NYPD, I mean, it was just bigger than all of us. We had never seen something like this. And uh, I just remember like walking through this toxic dust coming down on us and the sunlight is having a hard time penetrating it. So it's like a weird haze you're walking in. And... Uh, we're coming, I think it was Broadway. And the one thing I'll never forget is everything is covered in this toxic dust, including us. And um, all the thing that stood out was on the street, there were thousands upon thousands of women's high heel shoes. Because all the women that worked in the financial district, when they were fleeing, they took their heels off because they couldn't run and just ran barefoot out of lower Manhattan. And there was thousands upon thousands of women's shoes. Wow. And uh, there was all sorts of wild shit going on. Some guy walked by in a space suit and a Geiger counter. And we're like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, is he the military? Or is it some guy with a Geiger counter that was just waiting for this moment? Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, we got up to the facade. And I just remember looking at it. And I was like, holy shit. Like, it was so dangerous down there. You know what I mean? It's like, it was like children playing at a construction site. It was just that dangerous. And I was down there from about 1.30 in the afternoon. They dismissed us about 5.30 in the morning, 5.36 o'clock in the morning. And they said, listen, get a good night's sleep. We're coming back tomorrow. Be back at the office at 5.30. And we did that for about a week or so. And then, then they started doing the bucket brigade. We were doing that where there'd be a line of people. And they would fill joint compound buckets with debris. And it would just come down a line and it would get sorted through. And then they realized that that was never going to work. So then they started bringing in the heavy equipment. And since I worked in auto crime, what they used us for a lot towards the end was they brought us out to the dump. So all the debris was going out to an abandoned landfill out in Staten Island that they reopened. And we were cutting through the cars. So they were they, one of the concerns were people were crushed in cars down there because they were pulling these wrecks out that were just smashed. So, <clears throat> excuse me, we were using, you know, like different types of tools, the jaws of life and things and pulling open these cars to see if there were remains in there. But to the NYPD's credit, I mean, with a 35,000-person police department, they rotated us in and out so they didn't burn us out doing that. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I'd say that was probably one of the darkest things in my career. I mean, there's nothing that could prepare you for that. What's uh, what are some of the repercussions of having responded to 9/11 uh, physically, mentally? Well, I mean, you know, cops compartmentalize things. <clears throat> Excuse me. And again, I was 35 years old with, with 13, 14 years, and I mean, it. You know, I'm not going to say it was. It, sure, it affects you, but I mean, nobody in my office, I worked in, in an office of 120 guys. I mean, they were sending us for counseling probably about six months afterwards. And everybody was, I mean, I wouldn't say we're fine with it, but I mean, you know, if, if I, if I'm, I, I tend not to watch documentaries about it because I was there, mm-hmm. you know, there's not really anything they're going to tell me that I didn't see or hear. I just, I tend not to dwell on negative things. Um, Nobody I worked with, or including myself, I mean, had a nervous breakdown. I'm more afraid of the physical aspect of it because so many cops and first responders and a lot of those um, heavy equipment operators have come down with uh, various forms of cancer. There's a higher cancer rate if you work down there. So once a year, I go for cancer screening, and it's always like, as a matter of fact, as we speak, I'm waiting for my test results in the mail. I went last week. So you know, it's, it's like a nervous thing once a year. I'm like, all right. You know, I mean, I try to lead a healthy life, but at the same time, you just never know. Mm-hmm. So I got that hanging over my head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Um, nine 11 related cancer is, is scary stuff, you know? And unfortunately it seems like people aren't prepared for these things. They don't think about this stuff until it happens. And you know, now we're a little more prepared, but I'm sure that we're still not as prepared as we could be. Man, I, I, I actually, I was starting the police academy in 2001, so I started 10901, and I had heard, it's rumors started coming out that they were taking recruits and letting them, and making them sift through the garbage at, at the police academies in New Jersey. So I said, well, I know I'm going to academy, right? And I, I'm like, I'm, my father's going, what do you think you're going to do? I go, I, I guess if everybody's going to do this thing, I guess that's what we'll be doing for the first couple of weeks, but we never had to do it. I think by that time it rolled around, so it was nine, so it was three, four weeks later, um, that was my first police academy. And, um, you know, I, I remember where I was working that day and I actually watched the towers fall. I watched both towers fall from a position in New Jersey uh, along Route 1. I was working as a pizza delivery guy. So I was. I did that too when I was, before I was a cop. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was, like I said, three or four weeks before I started the academy. And it was, a, it was, what a day. I mean, what a day. I, I, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget every minute of that day and what it felt like to be there on that day. But I can't imagine what it felt like to have to had respond to that. And also I've obviously you and I both know, I'm sure uh, at least a handful of people that perished in the, in the, in the tragedy. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. I knew a couple of guys. Uh, I knew a couple of guys, not well. One guy was from my neighborhood. I kind of knew him around the neighborhood. I mean, just hello and goodbye. And then there was another guy. Actually, I got my car stolen when I was in the police Academy, he recovered my car. He died on nine 11. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I know a lot of guys that died of cancer that were down there. I mean, much more, many more died of cancer than I knew that were down there that day. It's sad. Yes, it's terrible. People don't realize, you know, I think that everybody empathizes and has compassion for it, but I don't know if people really got the real gist of it unless you were from this area. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. I, th- I think Well, just, just the smell. I mean, even in New Jersey, that smell probably made its way across the Hudson. Well, yeah, I mean... I, not only the smell, but like the dust. We were we were living yeah. in dust over here. Yeah, people don't realize that. I mean, and then I mean, I'll tell you a story about. Like, so down at Ground Zero, right after a couple of days, it starts raining, 
And I mean, basically, I mean, we knew anybody that was down there after the first couple of days knew we weren't going to find anybody. You know, I mean, nobody wants to hear that. And I get it. But it was just so obvious if you were down there, nobody survived this. It was just a big pulverization of humanity in there. And, you know, you started smelling that smell of death on a grand scale. And then what happens is it rains, then it dries. It rain, And then the odor just became, oh, I mean, you were, you know, coming into Manhattan, it just hit you. You know what I mean? It was like in your nose. I mean, I mean, you know, a DOA is a DOA, you know. Just, but on a grand scale. Things people don't think about, you know? Yeah. Well, if it makes know. you feel I any better, our next conference in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, April 28th, oh, sorry, the 23rd through the 28th, 2023, uh, one of our keynote speakers is Rob O'Neill, the guy who went and got revenge for everybody. Oh, yeah. So he'll be there. I'd like to meet that guy. So come down. Come down to the event. <laughs> I will, we'll talk off air. Okay. No, no, let's talk on air. You're going you're to publicly make a commitment that you're going to get your ass down to fucking Nashville. And and it's gonna be great. We're gonna have him. We and you brought up uh, Janine Pirro. We're actually kind of toying around with the idea of having her come as well. She's a really great speaker. Here's the problem: I got a 120 pound Irish Wolfhound that's neurotic. So for any for me to leave the house, any no, you don't understand. I'm lucky he's not in here now fighting me for airtime. Where it's like living with Al Qaeda, you never know where he's gonna pop up. So I got to find a dog sitter. But like I said, we'll we'll, we'll see. All right, all right, we'll see. What did you? Uh, what else did you want to talk about? Like, let's get into some cool shit. What do you want to hear? My, uh, I'll tell you stories from different books. NYPD Law and Disorder. It starts off with I, I have a chapter called "Embarrassing Moments," and it ha- and I go into most authors, even cops, like to paint themselves in a story as they save the day in a nick of time. They're the hero. They got the witty comeback. And I said, you know, a, a lot of embarrassing things happened to me in my NYPD career. So I go into a story about. Early 90s, my partner and I are driving around in the Bronx. I see this gypsy cab go by. It looked like it was getting robbed. We pull the cab over. In the back seat, there's three hombres and four kilos of Coke. Pull them out of the car, get four keys, go into the station house. And I'm like parading around like I won the fucking Stanley Cup. Everybody's high-fiving me and taking photos and everything. And I'm on top of the world. Coke goes down to the lab. The hombres go down to court. Now it's my turn to go down to the Bronx District Attorney's office and write up this arrest. I got to meet with a district attorney that night. So I go down there. And if anybody's ever been around the Bronx courthouse, I mean, when the judges have done bag- banging their gavels for the day, that place becomes a ghost town because it's in a shitty neighborhood. And uh, there's nothing to eat. But they had just opened up a food court across the street. So I said, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to get something to eat. Go into the food court. I'm still in uniform. I go to this little Italian eatery. I get a real Parmesan and spaghetti and a soda. I'm sitting there. I'm like, I'm just like on top of the world, man. I met the Kilo Fairy. Guys dream of this shit. I'm like, I'm just, you know, my chest is puffed out. All of a sudden, my stomach goes. I'm like, fuck, I got to take a dump. So I'm like, I'm not going to the courthouse across the street because that, that's just, that, that's disgusting. So I said, you know what? I'm going to go, this place, great. This place has got a brand new bathroom. I go into the bathroom. No one's in there. It's antiseptically clean. It's like a cathedral. I go into the stall, I take off my gun belt, I hang it on the back hook, I drop any cop that's watching this knows exactly what I'm talking about. You put your gun belt on the hook, you get all your shit off, I drop my pants, I'm getting ready for liftoff, and I hear the bathroom door in the front fly open. And all of a sudden I hear about five, six teenagers, they're yelling and screaming. I mean, this is the Bronx. They're hitting the hand dryers, they're beating the shit out of each other. I'm like, fuck. Yeah, I'm in uniform, but I'm kind of vulnerable with my pants down to my knees, right? 
All of a sudden, it gets quiet. So I'm like, did they fucking leave? Where did these guys go, right? Something told me to look up, and I see one of the hood rats. He had gotten into the next stall and jumped up on the toilet and was reaching over the wall trying to grab my gun belt. So I jump up with one with my left hand trying to pull up my pants, and I grab him around the neck with the other. And when I pull him, I inadvertently pull him over to my gun belt. Now he's got my gun belt. So now I let go of my pants, and now I'm hitting him with my left. I'm just punching him, punching him. Let go of the gun. He lets go of the gun. His friends now, I'm trying to pull him over the wall. His friends run into the next stall, and now they're pulling his legs. So now I got like a 120-pound teenager on that uh, aluminum wall, and now it's bending. Oh, and we're going God. back and forth, and he's all sweaty now. So, like, he just flew out of my hands, and the whole wall kind of collapsed Holy into the shit. next stall, right? So now I hear them running. I pull up my pants. I snap on my gun belt. I go hauling off into the food court, and they're gone. They're gone. And like I put in the book, I'm like, what was I supposed to do? Call the police? The responding cops from the 4-4 precinct would have laughed their asses off at me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'd be the laughing stock of the Bronx had I gone that route. So sometimes it's just best to keep your mouth shut. And I kept that story to myself until 30-something years later when I decided to write a book. That's funny. I think we all have some kind of funny stories. I had a, I had a job one time. And, and again, it just, it's along the same silliness. So I get... Uh, Fight call comes out, and it's it's at a park where I'm near. And I said, "Yeah, headquarters. I'm I'm right here. Send it over." So I go in. There's probably 150 kids in this park, but they're not all fighting. It's not a rumble like that. And uh, I see these two kids. <clears throat> well, I didn't see the fight going on, but I see two kids walking around with no shirts on. So I said, "All right, these are obviously the kids that fought, you know." And so the first kid I grab, I put him in cuffs. I put him in the back of the car. And then I see the other kid. I get out of the car. He's coming out of the bathroom. I guess he was getting himself fixed up after being in this fight. And uh, so I see this kid, and he he sees me. And I go, yo, my man, come on over here. And he takes off like a bat out of hell. He runs across this creek in this park and starts heading to this hill. And I swear to God, he disappeared into the brush. I have no, to this day, I can't figure out where he went. And it wasn't like a deep brush. He just disappeared. Like he'd been practicing for this, his whole life. So I, um, <laughs> so I, you know, I call. I said over to you, hey, I got one running. If everybody's up on Chain of Hills Road out there. Have a unit come down. He's probably going to pop out up there, snatch him pop up, up, right? So whatever. I mean, it's not the biggest job in the world, uh, but you know, that a kid ran. So now I'm like, oh, I'm going to kill this little motherfucker, right? I'm not going to kill him literally, but I'm like, this piece of shit. I, I understand. You're making my fucking life difficult. Why couldn't you just stop? This was going to be a, a report. Now it's now it's something. Uh, so I came back to the car, and this is the summer, so I left the car running because I stuck the kid in the back of the car with the AC on. I couldn't leave it. It was it was like a hundred degrees. You know, it's a hot day, middle of the summer. I come back, the kid's gone. With my cuffs, his friends let him out of the car, and they took him. So I came back, and I, oh, the first guy pulls up my sergeant. He's a good guy, and I'm fucking dying laughing, you know. And I said to myself, "How many people are gonna hear this story tomorrow in this town? This group of kids, like you're not gonna believe. I don't even know who that kid was to this day. But dude, it's so funny because I couldn't stop laughing, and I couldn't wait to share the story with people because it was so funny that I came back and they had let him out. Just came back to a, a, a door wide open. A kid gone and a pair of cuffs gone. So the kid they must have figured out how to get the cuffs off eventually. He was gone with my cuffs. You're lucky because the NYPD, like especially around the time I left, if you lost a prisoner, it was thirty vaca- You'd lose thirty vacation days, and they'd put you on a year probation. Yeah, that's that's a yeah. Good they one. don't fuck around. Yeah, I mean, it used it just it just it's one of the reasons I left because it just the penalties on everything just kept going up and up. And I'm like, when does this end? You know what I mean? So, and 
it's like to the, to the first book, NYPD through the looking glass, like in the NYPD, same thing. If you lose your gun, your ID card, your shield, any one of those items, it's 30 vacation days. They dock and they put you on a year probation. They might even suspend you now. And there was a guy we worked with that was paranoid about it. He lived in a shitty neighborhood. And uh, he was going out one night, and he didn't want to take his little snub-nosed 38 with him. So he put it in the one place he didn't think, like, a perp would look. He put it in his oven. Goes out, as a couple of cocktails. Four hours, nine beers later, he comes back to his apartment. He gets hungry. He decides he's going to make frozen pizzas. Oh, my God. So he, so he preheats the oven to whatever, 425 or whatever. He's sitting on the couch, and the 38 starts exploding. The rounds start popping in the fucking oven. Wow. He's got to run out. He's got to run out of his house. And call 911 on himself and have the bomb squad come and, fi- and the tactic, tactical, uh, what is it called? A firearms training had to show up and everything. Yeah, he got fucked. I mean, he got, he got more trouble for the gun exploding. I mean, it just blew into pieces. Wow. Wow. Well, Alcohol. 35,000 person department. I mean, you've got all these crazy stories, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I got to tell you, like, when it comes to discipline that's already preset, that's really not a, a good way to. Uh, really conduct business. You know, it's a, it's a tough job. And people have to understand that. And there's got to be some some leeway and some give to making mistakes. You can't have not with my job. <laughs> but I'm saying, like in not general, for, for, for a police department, you've got to be able to say, like, how many times did I train for this scenario of what I just described? I show up. There's 150 kids I'm by myself. I grab one. I go for the other one to try to resolve it. I come back. It was hot. I didn't want to. You know, how could you be, you know, dinged on that? And, and it, by the way, I'm going to say he wasn't even a prisoner. He was lawfully detained at that time because I, I had right. no interest in taking somebody in for a simple assault. I just wanted to – how it was coming in from people was like it was like this this all-out craziness. So I just want to get the bottom of it, maybe write a report and kick them loose, you know. And there are probably people from the NYPD in Baltimore and Philly listening to this going, yeah, well, next time you turn the fucking sirens on a few times before you get there so everybody disperses before you show up. And to be honest with you – I was doing that before I came. I was hitting the fucking siren so these guys would so these kids would run and just just be done with it. You know what I mean? Who cares? Right? It's like it's a high it was, they were high school kids. Right? So I'm I'm na 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 whoop whoop and they're all standing there like fucking frozen like uh deer in the headlights. But to have that kind of discipline hanging over your head all the time, how do you do this job? How do you do a job with that kind it, of it's 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 next to impossible. Um, I mean, and I was a detective my last 10 years. So, I mean, yeah, I was going out in the street, but I knew what I was looking for. I mean, I was looking for stolen cars. I was working cases with stolen cars. It wasn't like I was getting called to disputes and things like that. And, you know, I mean, you know, you know, as a cop, sometimes there's no real right answer. There's not, you know what I mean? There's just no real right answer. You're doing your best. It's not. Yeah. It's, it's not always black and white. Most of the time it's gray. It's funny. I was on another podcast and I told a story about how times have changed. Uh, early 90s or late 80s, my partner and I, it was like a Friday night. We're driving around. I see two teenagers tagging the side of an overpass. So I pull up. I grab them. Right. One got a little smart. I really, you know, and back then at 16, well, I, I don't know what it's like now, but at 16, you could put somebody through the system for a misdemeanor. So. I took the can of spray paint and I spray painted their necks gold and I kicked them, you know, I kicked them loose. So I, I actually about half hour later, I come up with an arrest with something else unrelated. I'm in the station house and uh, the desk officer goes, hey, Ferrari, come here. And I go, what? And he points to these two, these two guys standing and he goes, um, 
did you spray paint a couple of kids' necks <laughs> spray paint? And I go, why? He goes, well, that's a yes. He goes, that's their fathers. They're looking to make a civilian complaint. I said, all right. So I bring the father, the two parents into the muster room. The sons were there too. And they're pointing at me. And I says, and they were pissed. And I said, let me ask you something. I said, would you have rather of me put your kids through the system? He goes, well, they said that they were just drinking. And you, I said, no. I said, they weren't drinking. I said, they were spray painting. I said, they might've been drinking. I said, but they were spray painting the overpass. I said, they got smart with me. I said, instead of locking them up and having them spend the weekend in Bronx Central booking, and then you'd have to hire an attorney and them getting put on probation, I spray painted their next goal because I knew when they got home, they looked like decent kids. I said, I knew the parents would go, what happened? And they'd man up to it. I said, obviously they didn't. So the two fathers said, can you give us a second? They came back and thanked me. Oh, yeah. Now, what I didn't realize was 30 years later, I tell this story and the podcast puts it on TikTok and the thing gets something like 100,000. That's 100,000 hits. You know, like, you shouldn't be doing that, and blah, blah, blah. Like, listen, it's 30 years ago. The statute of limitations are long gone. I'm, and I hope those kids grew up to live a productive life. Had I thrown an arrest on them, they would have had, you know, a misdemeanor conviction or whatever. Yeah, well, I try to pander to these fucking morons, though. You know what I mean? I mean, you know. I, no, I don't. Yeah, I don't either. I don't I don't care. Um, we're behind the truth. We speak the truth. and. These these people with agendas, especially anti-cop people, oh, forget it. Who cares? What? Why are you going to waste your time? You're wasting time. That's a good story. What else you got, Vic? Uh, Give me some more of that stuff. This is like, you know, I do uh, I do podcasts with Ralph uh, Friedman all the time. You know, Ralph? Uh, I don't know him. I know of him. Um, so Ralph's been a very become yeah. He's been a very good friend of mine. Uh, we had him. We actually hired him to speak at our conference in October. Uh, came down. He did a great job. He started telling stories like this, and I said, you know. We should put you on a podcast. And I was actually at Ralph's house about three weeks ago. And uh, it's wonderful to have grown such a great friendship with him. And he's got this. So he's got this room. I mean, it's beautiful. It's decorated with all this. I've seen I've seen it on the Internet. I've seen I see. Yeah, he looks like an interesting guy. Like he worked in the full one. And I, I worked with guys that knew him. You know what I mean? So I heard stories about him early in my career. And, you know, he's an interesting guy. I mean, you know, I, I've, I've watched a couple of YouTube videos and he seems like a really interesting guy. And like I said, I've never met him personally. I had a conversation with him, but I know people that know him. Yeah. Well, the cool thing is, is I said to him, you know, when, you know, Ralph, you know, you're not a spring chicken. Make sure this stuff doesn't go in the fucking garbage upon your demise. And I said, you know, I, I would hate to see this stuff be put away somewhere and never be seen again. You know, make sure it goes that's to, true. Make sure it goes to a museum. He's got really interesting stuff. And then I went to his house and he goes, I'm going to leave it all to you. I said, you serious? He goes, that's nice of him. That's goes, really nice. He goes, of we're him. doing our wills. Me and him, I met his wife. She's a doll. Um, he goes, we're doing our wills. And I'm going to I go when that time comes, I promise you all this stuff will continue to hang for eternity and people will get to see it. And gawk at it and see how interesting this is. So if you give it to me, it's going in the right hands. And, and that was just, yeah, it was a real nice thing to receive from him. You know, in, an, in, in another time, that should be like in the Smithsonian. Right. Smithsonian, but it won't. You, you know what I mean? Because it's not politically correct, you know, but it should. What I'm saying about Ralph is like the stories are so similar when we have him on the podcast. We, we put him on like every five or six weeks. I'll, I'll try to run a podcast episode with him because he's got so many good, interesting stories. Just like this. You remind me of this because he's NYPD. It was a wild time. He worked in Fort Apache, right? It was a nutty place. Oh, well, yeah. Well, during his time, I mean, you could do a lot more during his time. Like, I think he was retired. before I got hired in 87. I, I mean, I, I think his career... I think his career was over before I came 82, along. 82, 83, I think he was done. 
Yeah. So, I mean, so that means he was in the seventies, which was a whole, you know, that was the wild West, the four one. The funny thing is, so the four one where they made the movie about Ford Apache, the Bronx with Paul Newman and Ed Asner and all those guys that was filmed in my precinct four two, when I was a rookie cop and for the four one, by the time that movie came around, they used to call it Ford Apache had become little house on the prairie because it had burned out. Mm. It was just, I mean, the 4-1 and the 4-2, I remember, you know, getting to that precinct and like, what the fuck? Like, just, they would drop you off on a foot post, like on Fulton Avenue, and there's 30, 40, 50 abandoned buildings just in, like, crackheads walking by. It was like, you were, like, on another planet. Like, it just, it, you know, there was, like, there was no one to relate to. It was just junkies walking around, you know? And the people, decent people were working. Like you had civil servants that lived there, but during the day they were at work. You know what I mean? And, and you know, you might catch them in the evening when they came home and call 911 to report a past burglary. You know what I mean? Or they're getting robbed when they're putting the keys in the door. But yeah, I mean, I kind of caught a, a little bit of that. But yeah, he definitely lived in an interesting time period. Okay, I got, I'll tell you, you want to hear the cockfighting story or do you want to hear about the cops stealing the horse and carriage? I would do both. All right. So I'll tell you about El Diablo. El Diablo was an Irish cop and was a big partier. And Spanish cops called him El Diablo because if you worked with him long enough, you're either going to get divorced, <laughs> go to AA, or convert, become a born-again Christian because it just his antics and partying never end. And he was a wild guy. He was funny. And we used to say he had the Prince of Darkness running interference for him because he never got jammed up. Little things, but not on the grand scale of what you'd think he would get in trouble for. So one night he's down in Manhattan and he's in a bar and he's talking to a couple of floozies. And uh, one of those handsome cab operators walks in to use the bathroom, the guys that do like the horse and carriage yeah. ride through Central Park. So the guy's all dressed up in like a felt outfit with a top hat on. And he's walking to the bathroom and El Diablo just passes a crack. He goes, hey, you mind if I take Seabiscuit for a ride around the corner? And the guy goes, yeah, sure. So El Diablo tells the two girls, come on, ladies, let's go. He's a friend of mine. They don't know. Shit. He goes out in the horse and carriage. He has somebody move the blocks. He takes the whip. He hits the thing in the ass. And the horse and the carriage starts going, right? And he's drunk, and he's operating the horse and carriage. And at first, the thing is doing what it's supposed to do. It's going around 57th or 59th Street. Well, before you know it, the horse realizes this guy doesn't know what he's doing. So the horse starts picking up speed now and starts blowing lights. Holy shit. The horse wants to go. The horse is like, fuck this. I'm going. I'm going to cut through Central Park and get some oats. I'm done for the night. This guy doesn't know what he's doing. So now the girls in the back have picked up on this and they're screaming for their lives. Get me the fuck out of this thing, right? He can't stop it. El Diablo didn't grow up on a farm. He's from the Bronx. So he can't stop this thing. While the runaway horse and carriage is going into Central Park, Two other handsome cab operators recognize, hey, that's Bob's, that's, you know, that's yeah. Bob's horse and carriage. Why is this thing going into Central Park at 100 miles an hour? They go in after it. It becomes like the Meadowlands, you know, on the weekends. Wow. One gets like a chariot race. So one handsome cab operator gets in front of him. Another one gets in back of him. And after a while, they're able to slow down the horse and carriage, right? Again, anyone else would have gotten locked up and lost their job. Not El Diablo. The two floozies run off into Central Park, never to be seen again. The handsome cab operator shows up. He wants to beat the fuck out of El Diablo. He goes, whoa, 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 whoa. I'll go to an ATM. I'll give you 500 bucks right now. 
He goes to the ATM, takes out 500 bucks, give it to the handsome cab operator, and that's it. Wow. And how how'd you guys hear what he was telling the story? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not like, like if that happened to me, like that story I told you, embarrassing moments, I would never tell anyone. No, everybody knew about it. Wow. Wow. That's funny shit. All right, give me the cock story. Cockfighting story. So I work in auto crime. My lieutenant, he's no longer with us. He wasn't a bad guy, but he was the type of guy. He had his opinion about something. And there was no moving him off of it. And it just seemed like over a period of maybe three months, I got involved in three different decent-sized arrests that had nothing to do with auto crime. I walked into a gambling den one time, and I just started grabbing people. And he got pissed off. He goes, you got to give that device. My partner and I got hit the kilo ferry again on an informant tip. He wanted us to give it to narcotics. We got five keys on, on, an, on another car stop. So he goes, stick to auto crime. You work in auto crime, stick to auto crime. I said, all right. So one day my sergeant comes to me and he goes, um, you know those Vespa motor scooters? I said, yeah. He goes, they're getting picked off like crazy on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. He goes, can you, can you do something about it? I said, come on. Those things are a pain in the ass. He goes, just, just do it. I said, all right. So I start pulling the reports and I see that one of the Vespa motor scooters, there was an arrest with it in the Bronx on Hawkstone Avenue off the Grand Concourse. So I said, all right, it's these kids. They're going into the Upper East Side. They're stealing these Vespas. They're probably, if I go up around that neighborhood and drive around, I'm going to see guys on Vespas. That's probably where they're going. The kids are stealing them. They're selling them. They're giving them their friends. So I go up there. I'm driving around. Don't see any Vespas. And I says, I know where they're going to be. In these, in, in these buildings in the Bronx, these six-story walk-ups, they have a common area underground where the super lives usually. And then they keep bicycles, motorcycles, uh, uh, snow blowers. So I'm going building to building. I'm knocking on the super's apartment. Hey, you mind if you can you open up the common area? Can I take a look around if there's Vespas? And all these supers, like it was like they were all proud showing me this, these underground lairs and couldn't have been more cooperative, right? So the last one I go to, I'm banging on the door and I smell weed, right? And the super opens the door and he looked like Tattoo from Fantasy Island. He was about three feet tall with like this big head of black hair. He's stoned out of his mind and he's shitting in his pan. I don't care about the weed. I really don't. I says, um, you know, Poppy, can you show me the common area? Okay, okay. And he's dropping his keys. He's a nervous fucking wreck. He's sweating. And he's like, he's got a padlock on this thing to a room. And he's just so nervous. I'm like, what the fuck is going to be in this thing? Like, you know, I'm not coercing him to do it, but I can tell he's a nervous wreck, right? He opens it up. He turns on the lights. And on the floor has got to be 50 roosters and hens. I mean, I grew up in the Bronx. I, You know, they're running around. And I'm like, holy shit, like 50 of them. But on, there's pods stacked like six feet high with, I guess, those were the aggressive cocks. It was like a... What it is, is it was like a storage location or a gladiator school for cockfighting. Like, I know what this is, right? So he's looking at me. I'm looking at him. And I got my lieutenant in the back of my mind. And I said, do you have any Vespas? And he goes, no, 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 no Vespa. I said, you sure? He goes, yeah. I said, okay, Poppy, lock it up. It's okay. I said, it's okay. He locks it up. He thinks everything's fine, right? We leave. And my partner's like, what are we going to do? I says, I'm gonna call. I'm gonna call the sergeant up. I'm gonna tell him what we got, and hopefully he's gonna let us fucking get a search warrant for this place, right? Call my sergeant up. He goes, no. He goes, the lieutenant left for the day. I go, well, call him, ask him. He goes, what did he tell you? 
stick to auto crime. He goes, give it to the ASPCA. I said, I don't want to fucking do that. He goes, just give it to the ASPCA. I said, all right. So do you remember there was a television show like in the early 90s or the mid 90s on Animal Precinct for Animal Planet? Oh, yeah. yep. It was about the ASPCA yep. police, right? Oh, yeah. So I called the ASPCA and I recognized the guy's voice. The guy, um, I think it was Romano was the guy's name. So now I'm busting his balls. I go, is this Officer Romano on Animal Precinct on Animal Planet? He was a nice guy. And I says, listen, I says, this is what I got. He goes, oh, that's, that's huge for us. Thank you so much. He goes, listen, he goes, we're going we're gonna to set up on it. We're going to do some work on it. He goes, if we get a search warrant, he goes, you want to be involved in it? I says, I don't know. I says, but call me. He goes, all right. Hand it off, right? So about two, three weeks later, I'm putting a fence up with my dad. And uh, my cell phone rings, and it's this guy Romano. And he says, listen, we're going to hit that place tomorrow. You, 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 you want to be involved? And I said, you know what? I'm helping my dad put up a fence. Thanks, but no thanks, right? He goes, okay. Next day, largest cockfighting ring hit by the ASPCA. You know, they recover a couple of hundred birds. Big thing for the ASPCA. And it's, all, it's in all the newspapers, right? My sergeant makes the mistake of telling the lieutenant, and he goes, yeah, that's the place Ferrari gave to the ASPCA. Now, as much as my lieutenant wanted you to stick to one thing, he was a publicity hound. Like, he always was looking to get in the paper. He was always, he goes, what? Why didn't you tell me about this? So then my sergeant starts backtracking. He goes, well, you know, he starts putting it on me. So I get called on the carpet, and I'm like, what did you want me to do? You told me to stick to fucking auto crime. I stuck to auto crime because this could have been big for us. I go, you can't have your cake and eat it or you can't have your cock and eat it too. No, you know, funny. like he just, you know, it was, what, what do you want me to do? So that's a, that's a story. story. That's from Grand Theft Auto. Yeah. Uh, store, uh, the NYPD's auto crime division. Yeah. I'll never forget that. Like he was so bent out of shape. I'm like, what the fuck did you want me to do? So good. So good. Yo, Vic, we should do this more often. You know, uh, we have a huge audience. Uh, I don't know how far. Oh yeah, it's time. Listen, we got we uh, we just checked it today. Frankie was my who's a podcast producer. This is great because I get to sound like Dave Portnoy and I just yell Frankie all the time. I'm gonna start. Trying, I heard you. Yeah, 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 I'm gonna start trying fucking pizza on this thing. But uh, he's here and he's shaking his head. Yeah, we have uh, we checked it with 319,000 subscribers to this podcast. Oh, cool. Yeah. Why don't you plug your, your books here? Let's get some of that stuff out there. So people can read yeah, some of this stuff. You got audio to. versions too? No, not yet. Come on, Vic. Paperback, paperback and um, ebook. Let's get you on the, in that booth. Let's start getting get with, the, with the New York accent. Are you living in New York still? No. <laughs> you in Jersey? No, I moved out to sunny Florida. No, I got the fuck out of Dodge, man. No, I was out of, I was out of here within a year. I don't blame you. What part of Florida you're in? Uh, over by Tampa. Okay, nice, dude. I mean, how's the weather right now? Decent? Oh, yeah. 70, 78 degrees, sunny, little breeze. Yeah, that's nice. That's nice. So plug the books. Where can they find them? And we're going to have you back on here for sure. This will be the last year. Oh, I'd love to. Anytime, yeah. anytime you need me. Um, all of my books, um, NYPD Through the Looking Glass, the NYPD's Flying Circus, NYPD Law and Disorder, and Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division. All my books are $10.00. Paperback on Amazon and two ninety nine ebook download. Oh man, it's a bargain, right? You can't even get a shot. Yeah, I like to keep the price now. Yeah, I like to keep the price point low. I don't want to, you know what I mean? Like, if someone's gonna, you know, someone's gonna spend their hard earned money on somebody they've never heard of before. I don't want to bang them for fifteen bucks. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, it's ten dollars that sweet spot. 
what are you uh, what are you doing besides authoring things in your in your retirement? What else you got going on? I, I do I do tons of podcasting. Um, I, I go on all these podcast forums. I'm thinking of starting my own down the road, and I write. I mean, I'm just constantly. I, I, I'm finishing up a book right now, and then I've got another book that that I've got ideas for. And you know, I just stay healthy, go to the gym. I walk this shitting machine, this Irish wolfhound who's staring at me. Go inside. Um, <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> no, it's it's eerie. I mean, it's something that big. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I just keep busy. You know, we are uh, right now putting together, I don't know if you have interest in this, and this is on air, I mean, publicly, because it's for a lot of people. We are looking for uh, journalists. So essentially, I am working with a couple guys right now who write freelance. Actually, they're, 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 they wrote a nice couple of nice articles for us, and we're going to use this stuff and publish it publicly. So I don't know if you have any interest in stuff like that. If you do. Yeah, sure. I mean, I like and, and again, yeah, freelance stuff. Uh, you could pick topics and articles. It's a good opportunity, and we're looking to collect more people. So off there, I, I'm sure Jessica put this together because Frankie just started on Tuesday or Wednesday, and uh, I'm sure she has your information. I'll send you my info. I'll text you, and we'll get that rolling. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's great. That's yeah, great. I like that. Oh, yeah, like you good. said, anytime you want to have me back, any, you're, you, you, you know, you're in a pinch, you want to have me. I mean, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. You know what I mean? And I got tons of stories. So, I mean, anytime you need me. Yeah, I yeah, appreciate it. No problem. Vic, it was a pleasure Nothing. meeting you, man. I, I I always like finding people who are cut from the same cloth that I'm cut from. You know what I mean? Just well, like, I, Listen, I was in New Jersey half my life. My, I had uh, all my aunts and uncles. They moved out to Richfield Park and Dumont and Teaneck. And North Jersey, Bergen County. Time as a kid. Yeah, they could, they could. They got out of New York, but they almost didn't get out of New York because that's pretty much fucking New York on the Jersey side. That's true. Oh, and then, you know, during, during the summers, I was at Benny down at the shore yeah <laughs> so was i brother i mean I, i'm not from i live down here now but i uh before that i was a north jersey kid and um they hated us and you could always tell who oh, we were yeah. because we wore sneakers to the beach that's how you know yeah they hated us every every family arrived down here is like yeah you stick out a, a mile away who wears sneakers to the beach we all wear flip-flops down here so it is what it is anyway vic uh, it was great having you man and uh, it's a pleasure thank you very much i got a funny feeling we're gonna be talking a lot in the future I'd like that. All right, brother. Enjoy. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. See you later.